This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast is brought to you in part by Flatiron School is an outcomes-focused coding boot camp offering the best in online web development education. Lean on instructors for professional support, move at your own pace through their proven curriculum, alongside a thriving community of students finding purpose through programming. Learn to code online, but not alone. Flatiron offers a job guarantee and comprehensive career coaching. Over 98% of grads accept job offers within 180 days of graduating. Flatiron School is offering Black Girl Nerds listeners free access to their online boot camp prep course, plus $500 off your first month's tuition towards their online web developer program. Visit flatironschoolnerds.com. That's flatironschoolnerds.com. Learn, love, code. Hey, this is Steph Firewell. Join me by Weekly at the Lemonade for all things nerdy and geeky, giving you all the sweet and sour notes from the nerd world, as well as my own special commentary to make this blend lemonade just right. Follow Lemonade at Audio Boom, SoundCloud, Podbean at the Points of Interest Network, and I'll see you guys soon. And I'm Victor. And this is Megashane. Megashane is a queer, people of color, weekly podcast, and we talk about anything from drag, to comics, to video games, to... Boys. And anything else in between. (laughs) So, if you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and you can follow us on Megashane Pod and Megashane on Twitter. That's right. So, follow us, talk to us. We'll be here. And we out. This is Sanai Sydney, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, I'm Regina Hall, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, this is Kim Whitley from Next Friday, You Know Sugar, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Yeah, they really are, y'all. Hey, I'm Jean Grey. I'm a polymath. If you don't know what that is, look it up. This is Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Yeah. This is Theo Rossi, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Sam Benjamin, uh, creator and star of The Few. You're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Kyla Fry. I'm an actress and being the change that we want to see. And I'm here with Black Girl Nerds. Listen in. Hi, I'm Vincent Jerome, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Black Girl Nerds. Yeah.
tuning into episode 103 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Bookworms, Womanism, and Sundance with Curtis Cook. Three segments. In our first segment, we invite Prithi Cheever. She is a contributing editor over at bookriot.com and you may have seen some of her tweets using the hashtag we need diverse books. We have a fun conversation about representation among women of color in comic books. That segment is hosted by yours truly and co-hosted by Karan and Tora. In our second segment, we invite Vilissa Thompson. Vilissa is a disability advocate and the creator behind RampYourVoice.com, a website used to empower people with disabilities, and she focuses her work on Black women with disabilities as well. You may have also seen her hashtag on Twitter that she created called Disability to White. In this segment, it's hosted by yours truly again, as well as Karan and Kayla. In our third segment, Jacqueline does a one-on-one with actor Curtis Cook over at Sundance. The Sundance Film Festival recently wrapped up, and he was there to present his film called Roxanne Roxanne. So, three segments really good ones. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you go ahead and tell everybody about the Black Girl Nerds podcast. You can go to Twitter and use the hashtag BGM podcast and we can be found everywhere. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, and Google Music. Thanks for tuning in to episode 103 called Bookworms, Womanism, and Sundance with Curtis Cook. Prithi Cheever is a marketing manager for HarperCollins Children's Books. She usually spends her time reading a ridiculous amount of young adult books, but is also ready to jump into fandoms at a moment's notice. You can find her on Twitter at RunWithSkizzers. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Very excited to be hosting this show with none other than my co-hosts, Karan and Tora. Thank you, ladies, so much for coming on the show tonight. Hey. Hey, y'all. We're excited to have this guest on our program tonight. We have Prithi Cheever. She is a contributor to Book Riot Comics and a self-declared book nerd and has a day job in publishing. Welcome, Prithi, to, to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thanks for coming on our show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. You guys do such good work. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. So my first question to you is um, kind of after understanding your history between working in publishing and writing about books for other websites and even doing podcasts about books, you obviously share a deep love and affinity for literature. So what is it about books that intrigue you so much? Um, so I was like, how do I answer this question and not sound like so hokey and like, <laughs> oh, like la-di-da, you know, um, because it really is about the written word. And when I was little, it was just, um, I was like the weird kid who asked for like four books for Christmas, you know? Um, 
And it was because I would see the movies in my head, you know, watching, like reading the book would just play like a movie in my head. So it was just pure escapism. Uh, and as I got older, it became very much about the word and the ability of words to manipulate readers and just how impressive it was when people could write a sentence, just like, you know, seven or eight words and change a mood. Like, I, I find it fascinating when you have um, things that can, like, give you physical reactions when you're just reading them on a page. Like, I just think that's so powerful. Uh, there was this, there's this book called Red or Dead uh, by David Peace that came out in 2015. And on the surface, it's like a 600-page book about the Liverpool football team. Which, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was reading it on the subway, and there's a section that was just about um, – a football match and the language is this like really repetitive staccato like da 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 and I felt my heartbeat increasing and like getting like really anxious and I was like this is the coolest thing that's ever happened so there's just there's such power in words and such power in books that it's I, you're never bored and it's never not engaging so, um, you know, in addition to the work that you do in publishing and, and loving books, and, and I think that's amazing, just everything that you're doing from the podcasting side to being a contributor for Book Riot Comics. I also notice your timeline on Twitter a lot. You get retweeted into mine constantly, um, which just goes to show that I follow some really awesome people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so intersectional feminism is obviously a very important topic for you because I see a lot of your tweets talk about diversity and diversity among women. Mm -hmm. um, and you advocate for diverse books. Mm -hmm. So can you give us some examples of the kind of work that you're doing that allows every woman's voice to be heard in publishing? Uh, sure. So I work in children's literature and there's a, there's a very big moment right now and movement for diversity in children's literature, which is so important. Um, because growing up, I'm, I'm sure we've had similar experiences of growing up and not seeing ourselves in the literature that we were reading, uh, and having to kind of sort of like beg for scraps and just hope that maybe there might be a brown kid in the book. Like, mm -hmm. Maybe. Uh, and so there's an organization called We Need Diverse Books, which yes. is grassroots started by authors um, in order to push the publishing industry to be better about the children's literature they were publishing and promoting. And I am lucky enough to work in sort of a distributions channel that goes straight into schools. And so I worked closely with diverse books to cr create curated lists of uh, books that are written by people of color with a f like I personally specifically focus on finding women of color because publishing is also a very male dominated field um, and getting those books directly into the hands of children. Um, other things are like getting the words from those women themselves as to why they find that diverse books are necessary and why they want more um, stories featuring marginalized communities and promoting their work and their words so that they're speaking for themselves. Preeti, this is Karan. And with regard to your work in publishing, you have kind of unfettered access to these young minds and young imaginations. What's been the most fulfilling part for you? Oh my gosh. Anytime you see 
uh, a kid holding a book that you put there. There's there's nothing like that feeling. Um, there was a book once years ago that we sold that had uh, a gay character in it. Um, and we got a comment from this like 16-year-old girl. And she said, thank you so much for providing this book. My little brother needed it. And I was like, I like wow. cried a little. And it was just like this moment of like, <laughs> oh, this is what it's for. It's to like validate and to provide um, children with this thing, that to, to show every kid that they're important and to provide kids with tools to learn empathy. Uh, so when that happens, when, when kids reads, read books and realize that, hey, it's okay if not everyone's like me or that this is me and my story matters, like those are the two things that matter most in the world to me. So how do you yourself contribute to and encourage the young to write their own stories to be a part of the process and not just be receivers of it? Uh, I hope that putting thoughts out online and not just in kind of Book Riot or, or these avenues that are much more adult focused, but through Tumblr and through social media and just kind of putting the word out that all of these stories matter will affect teens who are in these spaces as well. Um, obviously, I'm not targeting teens directly because disconnect between adult and teens, I think, is important uh, online. But allowing them to have access to that is so important. And hitting home the fact that, yes, there are people in publishing who want to hear your stories, who want to publish your stories, and want to publish stories about people who look like you or love like you or you know, think like you. Um, there have definitely been kids who respond to pieces I've written online and are like, this, this is what I want. Like, I'm so glad that I saw this because this is now I know that my writing matters and it doesn't just have to be a hobby. Wow. Yeah. Hi, Preeti, this is Tora. Um, so what qualities do books that really resonate with you have in common? And what would you say sets them apart from the rest that you read? Um, I think authenticity matters a lot, especially now. Um, I just read, and I can't talk too much about it because it's not coming out until August. Sorry. Uh, but I read the Miles Morales book um, that's coming out from Disney that Jason Reynolds wrote. Oh my God. It's, I know. Oh my God. I know. Just, just, I know. just a little bit. <laughs> um, I can't give any plotting or any of that away and I won't, but uh, it's this, the, the stark difference between reading what is almost an own voices book um, versus what's happening in the comics, uh, you know, props to Michael or Brian Michael Bendis for creating the character, you know, mm-hmm. Miles is, amazing he's like one of my favorite characters but oh my god this book so you're saying we're gonna love it you're gonna love it yeah (laughs) I think everyone's gonna love it it is the it was so it's a comic book book you know it's it's like Disney Disney and Marvel are basically putting out sort of canon fan fiction if that makes sense you know um they're taking these comic books and putting them into prose and creating these really moving books that could easily just be like, I mean, we all remember back in the day when they would do like 17 full house books, 
right? They would take yeah. properties that were not traditional prose books and they would just become these like someone like 15 writers sitting in a room banging out like 47 scripts a day. But I, now they're these are like quality like books. books. <laughs> right. Is this a person of color that's behind the writing on this? Yeah, so Jason Reynolds um wrote uh he co-wrote All American Boys and um as brave he's written like several children's books um he's a black author mm. and he's an amazing writer <laughs> so i'm gonna i'll like send him a note after this be like i just like went off on how cool you are for like 10 minutes <laughs> like, uh, it's it changes everything when it turns from like a an outside perspective not saying that you know i think anyone should be able to write anything right they want but both like take the criticism and be respectful of what you're writing but in this case, like, I have to say, there was an authenticity to the voice that just, like, gave it so much emotion and, like, feeling. Um, so I really look for authenticity. And also, like, I love a good turn of phrase. I am, like, a sucker <laughs> for a good sentence. Like, it, I will be, like, there are books that, you know, I still love that maybe the plot's kind of boring or, like, whatever. But if it's got, like good words like all I need is that like good narrative style sometimes and I'm like oh. I like melt that's awesome I I mean I just wanted to add too that um you know Brian Michael Bendis has been uh, criticized yeah. and, and his his feet's been held to the fire by a lot of fans because recently there's been a lot of tone deaf and like colorblindness happening mm -hmm. with the way he's writing Miles. And there was even one panel where Miles says that he doesn't want to be the black Spider-Man. He just wants to be Spider-Man. Right. You know, and I just find that especially now when it's so important that we recognize that here we are as people of color, as black people, that our identities matter because mm -hmm. we're being so marginalized and our d identities are being uh, oppressed against us even more so yeah, now um, that it, having that in a comic book for young impressionable minds to read is important. So yeah. let's not turn the other cheek and ignore that. So I, this is exciting for me because, you know, that's why we need to have more people of color writing these books and then also mm -hmm. editors um, in those offices, you know, giving writers those opportunities because mm -hmm. then you get some really organic, real profound stories. Right. I mean, you see it in Miss Marvel, right? There is right. authenticity to Miss Marvel. Like, Miss Marvel is the closest I've ever gotten to a character who's like me in a comic book. Um, yeah. You know, I'm Indian and Hindu. She's Pakistani American and Muslim. So, like, different, but similar enough that I feel very close to her and it's clear that you have a South Asian woman as an editor a Muslim woman as a writer like you can see mm -hmm. and feel the realness of it um and that matters a lot you know and I agree those the the colorblind thing drives me nuts it's <laughs> such like a relic from the 80s of this idea of like if you take like we can't take our color away. Like right. that's, that's part of us and it matters and it, it influences parts of our lives in a way that you can't take it away. So when you say that, like, I don't see color, you're like, well, I don't see a really important part of you. Exactly. 
Um, in an interview you credited, in an interview I read, you credited The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. Um, you credited reading that for part of the reason you decided to become an English major. <laughs> um, and I really identified with that because I can point to several books and several milestones in my own life. So I was interested in what other books, if any, have influenced other major decisions in your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of books influence tattoos that I've gotten. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like lots of books definitely were like, I will put this permanent thing on my skin forever. Um, <laughs> uh, Harry Potter, you know, um, Harry Potter is my problematic fave. I, I love it forever. It's, I recognize its shortcomings, but, you know, I read that book when I was, I read the first book when I was like 14 and then the last book came out when I was 23, I think, and had just moved to New York and it just encompassed a whole part of my life and influenced my wanting to go into children's literature like a thousand percent. Um, that's the big one, I think. There are others, I'm sure, that have probably pushed me into making bad decisions maybe but <laughs> <laughs> I have a tendency to like I have a tendency to fall head first into whatever I'm doing and whatever I'm reading I am basically a walking exclamation point so like the things that the like entertainment and content that I interact with is always going to be like a really really big part of my life well, I was going to ask you what books are you reading right now, but I feel like that's such a boring question. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to switch it up because I okay. do want to talk more about comics with you. Sure. So what are some of the more, what are some of the most progressive comics that you have been reading lately? I mean, some really good examples that I've been reading has been like the Gem and the Holograms comic mm -hmm. where they have a transgender character. Then there's World of Wakanda where there's black queer women represented. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some comics right now that you could recommend to listeners that are super progressive and intersectional? Um, I mean, Miss Marvel for sure. Like, yes, <laughs> have to. Have to. Um, it's so good. But it is. I mean, it's not even that I have. It's so good. It's like, so I, good. Right? You can't oversell it. It's so <laughs> engaging. Like, you don't have to be, like, a longtime comics reader to engage with it. It's just, she's she's the new Spider-Man. Everyone, everyone loves her. And that's not it. a stretch saying that. No. That's not an exaggeration at all. Not an exaggeration. I think she has the potential to be just as ubiquitous. Um, saga. I love Saga. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, so much. So uh, it's so good. Um, I really like what Archie comics are doing mm. a lot. I'm a huge Archie nerd. Uh, for whatever reason, a lot of Indian people really love Archie comics. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like a thing, you know, there was some like distribution thing that happened back in the like seventies or eighties. So I would literally go to India over the summers for like a month and a half when I was a kid and like just read Archie comics all summer and like buy them in the like tiny book like store down the street in the village or whatever. Um, but they're doing a lot of good work. Like uh, in Chip Zdarsky's Jughead series, Jughead came out as Ace, which is a big mm -hmm. deal because, you know, major franchise, decades old character identifying on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum is nothing to sneeze at. Um, there's, there also, I think it's really interesting what they've decided to do with their characters with like the horror series and 
you know, whatever. I think they're taking chances, which I, I really like. Uh, what else? I'm trying to think of like, what else am I reading that's like off the top of my head? Uh, oh, I love Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Yay, me too. I think it's so <laughs> Oh, Unstoppable Wasp. I have to talk about Unstoppable Wasp. I'm such a fan. Um, the Jeremy Whitley, uh, n- she is Hank Pym's daughter. But it's like a girls in science. Like, that's what it is. And there's like one character that looks straight up like Jonelle Monet. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's adorable. Um, yeah, I was actually, uh, Jeremy sent me like the first few scripts because there's um, going to be an Indian girl in it. And he was like, could you, you know, give it a read and let me know what you think. And it's like just that whole first, I, like, there were like no men in that comic. And it's kind of <laughs> awesome like there were I was reading the first issue and there are just pages and pages and pages and no there there's no male dialogue which never happens like that's why I'm a fan of fearless defenders have you ever read that no I haven't it's on my list but I haven't got I haven't gotten to it yet that's why I love it there's like no dudes in that oh maybe I'll push it to maybe I'll push it up I'm I'm a little fed up with men right now (laughs) (laughs) join the club (laughs) i could never i could never (laughs) they they are useful in some places they are yeah for procreation that's about it (laughs) the bank i'm just kidding and the kitchen we love you guys we We do we do i just i came off of a weekend of like hanging out exclusively with women of color and it was just really nice it was just right it was just so like wholesome and like affirming it's really really nice so Prithi what did you want to be when you were a kid and are you connected to those dreams as an adult I am not because I thought I was going to be a doctor me too what kind of doctor were you going to be I don't know it was because it was so bad it was because my mom decided there are three of us and she was like I'm gonna have a doctor a lawyer and an engineer and I got the doctor so like my whole life I was like I'm gonna be a doctor until I got to college and remembered that I'm terrible at math and science (laughs) yeah that would work I actually got in trouble once because I was interviewed and I was asked what I wanted to be when I was, when I grow up. And I said, I wanted to be a doctor. And they said, what kind of doctor? And I said, well, like Trapper John MD, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon, but he does general (laughs) surgery. So they were mad because I didn't mention a person of color. They were like, you don't want to be a doctor like Charles Drew? And I was like, no, he deals with blood and plasma. That's not my thing. (laughs) I don't think I was expected to know that, but it was like, no, I want to crack a chest open and rewire somebody. <laughs> it was always such like a a not real dream you know it was like one of those things where I was a reader my whole there was no way that I should have ever been anything other than an English major yeah like it is a travesty that I spent my first year pre-med in undergrad not just for my grades but definitely for my grades but I it was that was that was like a you know, there's there's a disconnect sometimes between my parents immigrated from India and there's a disconnect between sometimes immigrant families and the arts because the arts aren't necessarily seen as one, a way to survive. Right. Um, <laughs> two. It's a, it's a nice to have. <laughs> it's a nice to have, but it's not necessarily, you know, they came to this country to give us better lives. 
So why wouldn't we want to do something where we can have like the big house and the cars and everything? And um, a lot of, you know, especially in the South Asian community, kids just don't realize that there are opportunities outside of the sciences or outside of law or whatever. Like I looked into it. My older brother met someone who worked in publishing and he was like, hey, that sounds like something my sister might like. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know what I would be doing if he like didn't have that conversation with someone. <laughs> Maybe a psychologist. I don't know. So my final question, I feel like you've already answered. So I'm going to switch. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, so I read your article about... Um, the Archie comics and Riverdale. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were about um, how it's being represented versus Canon, the new series. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think it's a complex conversation because there has been some really egregious erasure happening on the queer side of things like Jughead, they're saying Jughead in the show is not asexual, excuse me, asexual, uh, which is not cool. Like, I'm not okay with that. On the other hand, they have cast the lead actor in the role in the show is half Samoan. Veronica is played by a Latina actress. Josie is actually all of Josie, Josie and the Pussycats. They're all black. Yes. Um, and Reggie is Asian American. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can name another network TV show that has 50% actors of color cast in their two tiers of leads and supporting. That is amazing to me. And, you know, the comic is still very much like it's not. So Riverdale is not a set um interpretation of what's happening in the comics right now it's totally new there's nothing in the comics that is happening on Riverdale and vice versa um it's kind of pieces of the afterlife with Archie and pieces of the new Archie uh mixed with like Dawson's Creek and Twin Peaks but I think they're bumbling a little bit in terms of certain representation and doing a really good job in certain terms of other representation like giving work to actors of color which it's really not easy to get work when you're not white in Hollywood. So, you know, you support what you can <laughs> when you can. That got really sad. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I <laughs> I have that same conversation like every week about Riverdale. So I just, right? I just wanted to know what you're because I when I read your article because I'd been having those same arguments about it um, once I saw the trailer for it, like because so many people were like, this is going to be nothing like the Archie I know. And then right. I read your article and it articulated all of the things. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad so, <laughs> I mean it's it's complicated right, right. Uh, <laughs> but then I saw I then I saw the show and you know I I who I'm on a podcast about it but I I wanted to know since you wrote the article what your thoughts were about it um so thank you so much for sharing <laughs> no problem <laughs> 
Well, Prithi, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. And can you just let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and on the interwebs, your your website, where they can find your work? Sure. Um, so you can find me on Book Riot and Book Riot Comics. Um, I have pieces going up there sporadically. Um, and But mostly you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Run with Skizzers because I signed up for stuff before I knew it was going to be my professional presence on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. This was great. This was a fun conversation. We really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. I can't can't wait to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Vilissa Thompson is the founder and CEO of Ramp Your Voice, an organization she created to establish herself as a disability rights consultant and advocate. Ramp Your Voice is a prime example of how macro-minded Violissa truly is and her determination to leave a giant tire track mark on the world. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, this special segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. I'm very excited to talk to you about this guest who I've been so impressed with on social media. She is an online advocate. She has her own website where she's doing phenomenal work. She's got a picture with President Obama on there. Uh, So she's doing really phenomenal, important work. And I'm also co-hosting this show with none other than Karan and Kayla. Thank you, ladies, so much for for coming on. Thank you. I'm excited. (laughs) Me too. So we have Vilissa Thompson. She is a disability advocate, and she is the founder and creator of Ramp Your Voice, which empowers those with disabilities and also is a great resource for allies to be able to help with this very important work. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Vilissa. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk with you all. So I see you working really hard out here in these Twitter streets. <laughs> um, I mean, that's how I got hit to you is your hashtags like disability so white um, and so many others. And, and I see that you're a huge advocate in this area and your website, Ramp Your Voice, which is a huge extension of your work is targeted towards fighting equality and justice for people with all disabilities. And you Mm -hmm. use it also as a platform to empower your audience as well as inform allies. So can you tell us what led you to create Ramp Your Voice and what led you to use Twitter as a tool for your work? Well, I created Ramp Your Voice in 2013 as a way to fill in this gap that I saw within the disability movement. I did not see many, particularly black disabled women, talking about issues that matter to me or uh, coming from from a space of being a social worker like myself and then having this experience on top of it. So as being somebody who loves to write and really has started blogging a year prior, I figured why not create a space and fill in that gap? And so that's how Rapid Voice got started. Um, just me um, wanting to do something different. And over the past almost four years, it has grown to be this platform 
to where I tell stories from this intersectional lens of being a Black disabled woman, as well as a social worker, as well as an advocate, as well as someone who fights for not only my own rights and freedoms, but for the freedoms of those that look like me. And what I love about what I do is that I'm able to empower other disabled people, particularly Black disabled women. Um, My work has always been for us and about us. And to really now be in that space to where I can be so unapologetically Black and disabled and to really speak on what matters to me is so empowering for myself. And so that is where it began, just me seeing that gap and wanting to do something about it. Um, I love to use Twitter, been using it a little bit more within the past year to connect with other advocates and like-minded allies who are talking about the issues that matter to them. So Twitter has just become this space to really make those connections and to really cause trouble or the good trouble that I like to say. (laughs) (laughs) We created hashtags like disability too white over um, the late last spring uh, that targeted the erasure of black disabled people uh, and other disabled people of color. And what does that mean to us when we don't see ourselves in this movement, when we don't see ourselves in this community? And that kind of goes back to why I created Ramp Your Voice is that lack of visibility. Um, that hashtag just really came up. Just a thought in my head when I saw yet another article that featured white disabled women mm-hmm. talking about beauty standards. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. dang, you know, I have beauty too. Like, where are those articles that feature women that look like me or those women who are color of color and disabled. And it just shot off into something that just exploded into this much needed conversation that I think that members who are of color and disabled really been feeling for a while, but really have something to really latch on to, um, to really talk about it in such a way that it can no longer be um, ignored. So Twitter had just been this space to where I'm just able to call out people who are wrong, call out issues that are wrong, um, meet other Black disabled women, meet Black women like you all who are doing phenomenal work uh, to empower Black women in different areas. It's just a really just big um, connection space and just really expand on my work and just um, be able to really be more creative and to really think of ideas and also learn so much as well. So Twitter, you know, has just become that space to where, you know, it's lit. <laughs> it gets lit sometimes. <laughs> and um, and it's a fun space. You know, sometimes it gets a little, get a little suspect sometimes. But for the mm-hmm. most part, <laughs> for the most part, it's, um, it's been this great medium for me to grow and for me to um, just really expand on what I do. And people also do. Uh, reach out to me about projects or just wanted to learn about different things. So it's been a great medium for me to use. And and I'm glad you mentioned the name of the hashtag because I apparently quoted it wrong. It's disability too white is the hashtag mm-hmm. that you, you coined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But people get it that way too. So it's all, <laughs> it, it's all had the same message, meaning that we have too much whiteness when it comes to representation yeah, <laughs> right. right. at the same time. Right. So we, we talk a lot about intersectionality and feminism. We just had a podcast recently about that topic. Um, and rarely do we talk about black women and women of color with disabilities. And you yourself mm-hmm. 
define yourself as a womanist. So I Mm -hmm. do want you to tell our listeners, which I'm pretty sure most of our listeners know what a womanist is, but just Mm -hmm. in case, let them know um, what a womanist is. Um, And also, you know, why do you think we don't hear enough conversations about black women and women of color with disabilities? And what can we do as allies, as able-bodied feminists and womanists to be more intersectional, to advocate for all women? Mm -hmm. Well, I want to start off with the definition of womanism. And womanism is a social theory that is deeply rooted in the racial and gender oppression of black women. Womanism, unlike feminism, is a theory that includes the various identities black women may have, including disability. And for me, womanism, where I feel safe as a black disabled woman and believe that all of my identities are seen, understood, respected and accepted. Um, the one of the reasons why I gravitated towards womanism and not feminism was that I personally cannot align myself with a movement that has a history and still does um, exclude two of my three primary identities, which is blackness and disability. Um, the feminist movement has been ableist Mm. and also racist. And so for me, I don't have the time or the spoons to teach white women to not only respect my black womanness, but also see me as an equal, as a disabled woman. So for me, womanism is a space to where I don't have to explain why black lives matter. Mm -hmm. We understand that. I don't have to explain the struggles of black women. We understand that. Um, I don't have a problem with educating Black uh, women about my plight as a disabled woman, because I feel that, for me, as an advocate, educating others is a part of that. So for me, I have the spoon to teach my people, my people being Black women and Black people in general, you know, about what it's like to be disabled. But for me, I don't have time to be in a space to where whiteness is prevalent, ableism is prevalent, racism is prevalent, and try to say that, hey, I need to be seen too. So that's why for me, I do define myself as a disabled womanist because that's one less fight for me to have to do as somebody who has three oppressions that I'm having to fight with every day. Mm. So that's really why um, I gravitated towards it. And that's not to say that I don't understand what feminism is or doesn't don't support the principles of feminism or feminist theory which is which is I do but I just really have issues with the way that the movement have not respected or validated um, black women disabled yeah. women and for those of us who are at this intersection so that's why for me I cannot in good faith call myself a feminist um, and so I feel that there's when it comes to allyship I feel that there's a lot of work that can be done with uh, with that. Um, the first is being checking your own privileges mm-hmm. and your own biases and prejudices when it comes to disability. Um, disability is an identity that goes unnoticed in many ways. Even though we all know somebody with a disability, there's one in five Americans have a disability. So... Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the people that you come in contact with every day, whether you can see their disability or not, they're probably disabled, whether they have a chronic illness, whether they have 
uh, psychiatric disability or have intellectual disability or learning disability, you know somebody who's disabled, whether they, whether they disclose that to you or not. So to really check yourself in how you think of disability uh, from a medical model standpoint, which just focuses, focuses on the symptoms of disability or the diagnosis to a social model understanding of disability in that we live in an able society, which is mm-hmm. why people are disabled. So really learning the culture of disability, learning the terms that we use. Like for myself, I call myself a disabled woman. I do not say that I am a woman with a disability uh, because I use identity first language. Just like we say we are black women or we are, you know, somebody who's LGBT may say that they're a queer woman or a lesbian woman. I use identity first language to say that I am disabled uh, versus the person first language. So really as... um, feminist or not disabled feminist, really understanding the culture of that. And also just really giving us the space, kind of like what you all are doing today, to really talk about our experiences and knowing that, yes, we are all women, but we all experience this world differently uh, when we factor in other identities, such as disability, particularly for those of us who are visibly disabled, like myself. I'm on the four feet tall and I'm in a wheelchair. The world interacts with me differently than for somebody who may have an invisible disability, such as a psychiatric disability or a learning disability. Hmm. So just understanding that just because we have one shared identity doesn't mean that we all experience the world the same way or the world reacts to us in the same manner. And and I just really wish that, particularly for those of us who are actively on the ground, if you're going to have protests or meetings, just doing simple things and making sure that they're accessible. You know, accessibility doesn't really cross the people's mind until somebody in the wheelchair comes up and there's mm-hmm. three steps to get into a building. Or when you have protests, you know, not really having safety nets involved for those of us who may get overstimulated during that time. Or making sure that if there's some people with physical disabilities there, make sure that they can be protected in some way in case there's um, hysteria going on in case something goes goes um, wrong. So just really ensuring that the spaces that you have, both physical and those online, are accessible to us. Um, when it comes to online, looking at the way your website is formatted. is Do you have captions for pictures? If you have videos, do you have you know, auto descriptions? If you record things, if you have um, you know, just the type of captioning that's needed so that disabled people can access your work, access your message without any barriers and not be excluded in that. So those are just some of the things that when we talk about including disabled women in these spaces, and not just feminist spaces, but any space, you know, what does that look like? And really asking us, what does that look like? And then putting it into work to make it happen. Vala, so this is Karan. Mm-hmm. And I am a disabled veteran and also a black woman and a womanist. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a huge disparity between how men and women are treated within the disability systems, especially when it comes to benefits. And many times, uh, at least in the VA system, um, many claims are denied for women and reduced to women's issues or their reproductive history. They'll get denied for their claim 
because they have an existing condition that that was related to childbirth or uh, they have fibroids or so they'll blame it on something else. What mm-hmm. has your experience as an advocate for the disabled taught you about race and gender discrimination within the system? Well, I know I'm so glad you brought that up about being a reverend because when I was in grad school, that's one population I did focus on and learning about female veterans and mm-hmm. some of the challenges that you all face um, when it comes to the, your your experiences in the military and then coming back into civilian life when it comes to the VA system, particularly when it comes to homelessness, because that was what I focused on in my grad program is the homelessness um population of female veterans i'm a formerly homeless i'm a formerly homeless female veteran mm -hmm. i work with Mm -hmm. women women veterans interactive out of dc um so i'm an advocate as well but that's also a population i belong to Mm -hmm. so you know just really learning about you know those underrepresented unspoken for populations is what drives me and coming from the social worker standpoint i feel that most agencies only focuses on the immediate needs of people and not take into consideration what they have going on around them. Mm-hmm. Like you can uh, focus on, let's say for employment, you have a female veteran who, or disabled woman who has the credentials, has the drive to want to get employed, but with her being of color or her having a visible disability, that can be a barrier to that. And I think that some agencies, they don't think about all those identities that a person has that can create more obstacles or barriers for them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my frustrations that I see uh, as a social worker. That's one of the things that I try to speak on through that intersectional lens is bringing up all these factors that can impede a person's ability to live the best life that they want, to thrive, to survive with the least restrictions as possible. So for me, you know, really having that focus on talking about gender and race is important because for me as a black disabled woman, you cannot see me fully if you only focus on my disability. When I wake up in the morning, I see black. That's what I see. Then I see a woman and then I see disabled. Even though I have a visible disability, that is what I see. And Mm -hmm. I see those things because that's how the world has interacted with me Mm -hmm. my whole life at 31 years old. You know, so for me, it's really frustrating when you have social social service agencies or disability spaces that only want to focus on that one reason as to why that you're in their office or why you're advocating and not see the whole picture because we're all made up of different factors, whether we mm-hmm. see it or not. We are all are experiencing this world in different ways. And just because we're disabled doesn't mean that you experience the world in the same way that I do, or I don't experience it in the same way that you do. So again, even when it's something as simple as, looking at those factors, it still, when it comes to discrimination, it still has to be through that intersectional lens. So you can capture the whole picture so that when you're assisting somebody and getting services, you can better understand what are the barriers that they're experiencing so that for somebody like me who is a health professional, I can advocate for that person better. You know, I can't just advocate for you to get employment without thinking about, okay, well, if you have a certain skill set, is this feel open to black women? It mm-hmm. just feel open to disabled women. You know, are you going to experience some type of prejudices because of the way that you look, even though you may be the one of the best qualified people there? So, you know, for me, looking through that lens of um, intersectionality is what drives my work. And it's something that I always try to be mindful of. Um, 
I know that there was a picture online that showed several people in relationships. And I thought it was a great picture. It had like people of color in there, but there wasn't any LGBT representation. And for me, I was like, hold up, you know, just there are LGBT disabled people. Why aren't they represented in the same kind of picture? So again, you know, it's just that type of consciousness that I always try to have when I talk about discrimination and to like, and to really look at it through all facets and make sure that I'm being conscious of myself and making sure that if there's other people who's doing good work, they stay conscious of things as well. You mentioned invisible disabilities, and this is something that I actually talk about quite often because so many of us who have served the country have what are considered invisible disabilities. They're things that you can't see. They're not obvious that we have disabilities. Like, uh, for instance, I have a spinal condition that was service related. I have a nerve damage. We have, you know, mental health issues. There, there are mm-hmm. things that you cannot see. So, for those of us who do have invisible disabilities, ones that aren't physically obvious. Or related to mental or that are related to mental health, how has Ramp Your Voice addressed the stigma and the judgment that surrounds people who are disabled but don't look disabled? Well, I know that for me, I always try to speak on that because my life as a visibly disabled woman is different from somebody else. Mm-hmm. One of the things I know is that I don't have to prove that I'm disabled, which I know that is something that those with invisible disabilities have to do. You know, they have people dismiss them like, oh, you look healthy. You're not disabled. Oh, you're able to walk. You're not disabled. Or, oh, like, you know, you're able to work and function. Oh, you're not disabled. And disability looks so different in everybody. Like, you can have the same disability as somebody, and you can have two completely different experiences. So just just that ignorance alone of not being able to see somebody's disability and just dismissing it, that's problematic. Because you're not seeing that whole person. You're not looking at them through that holistic lens, as we like to say in my profession. So for me, I like to use Ramp Your Voice to talk about the issues that I know personally, as well as the ones that I don't. Because I can't just you know, rightfully advocate for women with visible disabilities and not those with invisible disabilities. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. And I know I've done a, several posts and featured women with all types of disabilities uh, on my website because... Their experiences matter. Like all of our collective experiences matter, and they all need to have a space to where they can be shared and empower not only the storyteller but those who are reading the story. And that's what I want Rampant Voice to be. And I know that even for myself, um, I know I've been very candid about my disabilities. Um, I know I've written one time about going through a state of depression um, and writing about that. And I know that. You know, for some women, like writing about that, they really feel empowered because they don't see black disabled women talking about being depressed or what did that look like, and then how did they um, take care of themselves during that time. So even when we experience um, situations that is not our everyday, but it's a part of this disability story, you know, disclosing that can mean so much to not just you, but for somebody who realized, oh. I'm not the only one that goes through this. You know, and I think that telling telling those stories really allow people to really see that it's not just them. You know, when you talk about your service and you're going through homelessness, that's not just you. So you speaking that up and really affirming other women who's like, you know, I've been there or I am there. And I too can go beyond that and to mm-hmm. do work that's 
impactful and to uplift other women? Because I'm sure that in your work that you find women who listen to your story and really feel encouraged from that. Because I know I do in my own uh, advocacy work. Yeah, and that absolutely. energizes me. You know, I know it energizes me and it really lets me know that what I'm doing is so important and it humbles you and it keeps you grounded because it makes you realize that you're just this vessel that allows people to be able to speak on what they need to. So yes. when I allow women to come on my website and to blog about it, because I know I have a series that's coming up next month, you know, Black Disabled Women with Different Disabilities, to be able to allow them to tell their story. I know they're not just telling their story to me, they're telling a story for themselves and to anyone else who can relate. And I think that for Black women, we need that so much to be able to have those spaces. And that's one of the things that I really want Record Voice to be, is that safe space to where all Black women experiences and other disabled women of color experiences are seen. And to be that space, because there's really not many there yet. And I want more to be there, but you know, as I'm one of the handful, that's part of my charge in doing that. Hi, Melissa. It's Kayla. I am really impressed with what you've done with your platform and all the things that you're providing. Mm-hmm. What you do with Ramp Your Voice with the services you services you provide, like you know, students with disability consultations, um, disability acceptance, and sensitivity training. Can you give us a little bit of insight into what those services entail? Well, those services were what some of the ones that I created when I first started. And that was some of the areas that I really felt that was important at the time, um, trying to educate uh, parents about their disabled students, right, disabled children's rights in schools. I know I have a couple of parents who I'd be able to kind of be that voice as to, you know, what's what to do or what to say or what resources to get. And I'd stem that off from the collective knowledge that I know that works, but also my personal experience as well, going through the education system, public education system as a black disabled child, what does that look like? So mm-hmm. just really gearing towards those professional, educational and personal experiences. But I know that for right now, as I've grown with Referee Voice, particularly in the last year, I really want to focus more on some of the things that I mentioned of that intersectionality piece. And I know that at this point, I'm kind of revamping um, my services so that it can kind of mirror what I wanted. Um, when I started Rep Your Voice, I just started it being more general in what I focused on because I was so afraid of being pigeonholed as only being able to talk about Black issues, particularly as a Black woman. When you start off like that, that's all they see you as. And I know that I have more to give than just talking about Black issues. So broadening myself to where I could talk about education, politics, healthcare, really allowed me to be where I am today to where I could talk about those, talk about those things and then add the intersectional, intersectionality piece and then add the Blackness factors. So for me, it was kind of a method to the, um, the method there to really make record voice so that I can push myself up to be viewed in this way and then I can kind of infiltrate the system without them knowing that I'm going to talk about blackness, disability, intersectionality. So for right now, I'm really focusing on molding rapid voice into that space that I wanted, wanted to be from day one, but wasn't sure how our community could take it. If I just came off as being unapologetically black and not just kind of 
um, doing it the way that I did. So right now, um, my services will change from what you stated to more intersectionality pieces, uh, writing opportunities, uh, doing presentations, which I love to do for professionals about intersectionality, about understanding disabled experiences. I know that I do that a lot when it comes to social workers, speaking at social work conferences um, about trying to get social workers information since our definition <laughs> and understanding of disability is so outdated and yeah. at times can be very harmful to mm-hmm. what, we're, what we need to do as uh, a profession. So just really opening those services up and kind of redoing that is kind of my um, goal plan for Rampant Voice for this year to really get it to where I want it to be um, that I really wasn't very comfortable with starting off with, but now that people know that I can talk more about than just Black issues, I can do more Black issues like I want to. So just really kind of updating it to that. But um, yeah, Sister's trying to get paid this year. (laughs) That's right. Hello. We all are. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Because you know, the one thing that really gets me, particularly because of black women, that people expect you to do this work for free. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I'm like a sister got to get a check every now and then. I got bills. <laughs> I got student loans to pay for. So, <laughs> you know, to really, you know, make an impact and also be able to support myself, you know, it's something that I'm really focusing on this year. And to really do that through the means that matter to me, like I said, presentations, blogging. Um, public speaking engagements, doing consulting about certain issues. You know, those are the things that I'm passionate about. And, you know, everybody else, you know, you know getting it out here, why not me? Why not us? You know, so mm-hmm. I, um, you know, just really want, you know, Rampant Voice to continue to be that space to where, you know, you're going to get the realness out here. You know, like I don't hold back at all. And I want Rampant Voice to be that space to where, you know what you're going to get and you're going to get the quality and understanding and the um, in your face truth that I think sometimes isn't always there. And I think that as black women, we understand the importance of speaking our truth, living our truth and demanding that our truth be respected. So I think that for me, that's what the rewrapping of record was going to be about is respecting the truth that I have to share and allow other women to share as well. I want to go back to when you said that you were um, wanting to make a place where people feel safe to share their experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you hope to provide people with disabilities under this new administration where they may feel unheard now more than they ever have? Well, I think that one thing I want us to realize is that it's okay to be scared because I know I'm scared. I know we're all scared of what the heck is going to happen over the next, not even four years, just this next year, mm-hmm. you know, of, next week. Um, yes. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> next week, you know, so, and it's okay to be scared. I know that's a human reaction. That's a human emotion. And, you know, I'm, you know, I've been having to do a lot of self care to really not get sucked into deeply into that fear. But once we, overcome the fear, what are we going to do next? And for me, I want to continue to keep telling the truth. You know, I don't want my voice to ever be silenced because of who we have at the White House or who we have running certain departments. The truth still to be told. 
and your truth still matters. I think now more than ever, now more than ever, that whole word that people like to throw around solidarity, that's real now. Mm-hmm. Like we have to stick together mm-hmm. or we're all going to be up the creek without a paddle, as they like to say. So for me, Record Voice is going to keep continuing to do what it's doing now is speaking that truth. And I want other people, um, disabled women, particularly disabled women of color, to keep doing what they do because we have to keep, we just have to keep doing it because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen if we don't. You know, I think that if we get to that state to where we allow fear to consume us, that's when, in my mind, they start to win because they want that fear to keep you quiet. They want that fear to make you conform and fall in line. So I think that as we continue to call out the BS for what it is and to really hold people accountable, um, even when they have these positions to where we're unsure of what they're actually going to do, to me, that's really a part of what I know I'm planning to do over the next year and the next four years to continue to put up the good fight and to really protect the rights that I have and protect the rights that other people have too. Cause it's real out here. This is not a drill. This is real life and um, banding together and doing what we're doing right now is giving people platforms and spaces to talk about their work, talk about the issues that matter. That's going to be so instrumental um, over the next four years to continue to do and to be on the ground and doing the legwork for those of us who are able to do so and to be heavily involved in politics and learning about politics if you're not very familiar, educating yourself is going to be so crucial because nobody needs to fall for the okie doke because they don't understand um, how the three branches of government work or Mm -hmm. understand how to contact their representative to make sure that they vote a certain way. All those things matter so much. So if you're unfamiliar with politics, unfamiliar with how the system works, there are some great resources out there to arm yourself with and to read those books and to listen to podcasts like you all, you know, or to read blogs like mine and other advocates um, to really see how solidarity and unity and this continuing to fight, even when we're a little weary, is going to really get us to where we need to be and hopefully in one piece still. Midterms, everybody. Go out and vote, yes. please. Everybody <laughs> worried about 2020. You need to worry about 2018. 2018, yes. Mm-hmm. She, she, <laughs> mentioned, she mentioned understanding how, how the three branches of the government work. And I'm thinking, was... he doesn't even understand how the three branches of the government <laughs> he work. Really he really doesn't. He really doesn't. For real. For real. My goodness. Vilissa, I just want to say that I am so inspired by your work and I definitely would love to have you to come back on our podcast to talk more about what you are doing. And thank you so much for being on our show. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about Ramp Your Voice and where they can find you on social media? Yes, um, you can find me at rapyourvoice.com. You can email me at Vilissa, and that's V as in violin, I-L-I-S-S-A at rampyourvoice.com. I'm also on Twitter at Valusa Thompson and at Ramp Your Voice and on Facebook um, with the backslash Ramp Your Voice. So I'm everywhere on social media. So just find me, hit me up if there's um, any, if you want, if you're a disabled person of color, uh, particularly a disabled woman of color and you want to share your story, if you want your story on my platform, 
do feel free to let me know. Um, I'm really looking forward to, like I said, continuing to tell our stories and giving us that space. So, and I'm here, you know, just, just let me know what you need. And this work is for you all. It's not about me at the end of the day. It's about you and what message that you want to see and what you want to hear. Such important work and so needed. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. And continue to do the good work, ladies, because your voices are just as needed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Curtis Cook, born in Dayton, Ohio, is an actor and director known for Shutter Island, The Interpreter, and Arbitrage. You probably also saw him in Luke Cage as Uncle Pete. Well, he has a new film out where he plays the role of Dave in the film called Roxanne, Roxanne. The film also stars Mahershala Ali and Nia Long. So, um, we're here in Sundance, yes. trying to stay warm inside uh, the library. We just saw the premiere of Roxanne, Roxanne. So, Curtis, yes. Cook, sir, how was it to watch it with an audience for the first time? Let me tell you. So, I hadn't seen it before. I didn't get a pre-screening of it. And when her, when she hit that pose and the name Roxanne, Roxanne came up and the music started and the crowd went crazy, it just shot this fire up in me. I was like, Yes, because I'm a kid from the 80s. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was my music. Yeah. As soon as I heard it in all the beats, I was like, yes, this is nice. <laughs> dope. It's dope. dope. Right. I was going to say that. I didn't want to No, this is the thing, though. Dope is come back. Yeah. It is so come back because there's just no other way to describe it. Like, I feel there's two films at this festival where you're like, and somebody asked me for the one word review. I'm like, dope. dope. Go ahead. Roxanne, Roxanne, <laughs> and uh, the incredible Jessica James. Two okay. great Two great movies, I think, have a lot of similarities in that they have two African-American leads that are completely charismatic in their roles, and you can just feel it out like off of the screen and you know that you're like i, I just want to be friends Avengers. with them mm-hmm. i want to like i want to know your truth i want to know everything about it and there's some really heavy moments in this film yeah. some of which you know were kicked off by uh-oh, you i might add uh-oh. no spoilers no, no spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> heavy moments heavy i'll just say moments, that heavy moments, moments in the film right, right, right. so you're not as shy from that because you know this ain't the only thing you got going on and i would just say this so mm. what's it like you've had a storied career a long career yeah. maybe doing a lot of things people don't know doing your tv doing your films there how has luke cage changed it though because one episode and i bet you oh my god that pivotal episode. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure everybody has seen Luke Cage. And it's yeah. like... Our audience, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's like, there was a meme made of me about that scene. I'm like, what? Are y'all serious? I've been doing I've done movies with Martin Scorsese, Sidney Pollack. Yeah. Ain't nobody telling him. Now nah, I do the thing and thing. And everybody's talking about I it. I mean, so. and did you feel it immediately? Like, right after it came out, did people start yes. coming up to you saying, Uncle Pete, Uncle, Uncle Pete. Pistol Pete, I was like, oh, what's up? He's like, Pistol Pete. Yeah, definitely. And I had the side part. I cut all my hair off. You know, I was rocking the side part for a long time. I was like, okay. Yeah, it's changed a lot. And and the scene itself is very powerful. You know what I mean? and it's com- the character was complex. It wasn't just like a stereotypical bad guy who comes in. Yeah, it's some. It's it's intricate. I mean, I'm I'm really excited for season two. We have this uh, meme right now that we're talking about Shady Mariah. Have you heard about this? Because like Mariah like changed in the middle of the season right. from like one thing to another. She went from like Oprah to like I don't know like I can't even think of the, like uh, chick from, gangster. You know yeah, what I mean? From um, House of Cards, Robin Wright and House of yes, Cards. Yes, you know, exactly. Went to that. Mm-hmm. Took it there. So. 
what was it like being in those family scenes? Because you knew that these are all flashbacks. Yep. So um, what's it like? The beauty of it is, of course, you know, we did a big table read beforehand. So you got to really see, uh, Mahershal and I knew each other well. And they were saying, like, we, I am the prototype of which he becomes. Mm -hmm. So that was beautiful. And then to have somebody like Latanya Richardson, you know, my seasoned actress who knows her thing, have these incredible stories and able to relate quickly. Mm -hmm. It was dynamic. I mean, it was totally dynamic. And y'all felt like a family. Yeah. Like, e like, even in that, that, that tracking shot, you know, where you go from the whorehouse to the back room. And, like, that, I think, is what some people don't necessarily know about organized crimes and co uh, community cultures. It is a lot of that. There's some really dirty stuff that's being put up front so that you can keep a family together. You know what I mean? And so, that's in American society. Let's keep it general, real. Like everybody. Yeah. You know, yep. all of these people who are major politicians yeah. and all this kind of stuff. A lot of it, you start digging, you see a lot of Yeah, what do they say? Like, JFK's family were bootleggers. Oh, yeah. Like, they all came from, a lot of times, not what a prohibition made half of our modern-day politicians, yeah. right? So, yep. there's all of that. And, um, it, well, obviously, we love Luke Cage, but... I mean, how is it different though now? What are you looking at parts and you're saying like, are you saying, you know what, I've done this thing mm -hmm. and I want to really just do something different now because I can? Or are you saying, let me just take this moment and enjoy it? Well, I'm, you know, to be totally honest with you, I'm still, I'm still looking for that bigger role. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and that, it'll come. I know it's coming yeah. because I'm getting to do very quality work. You know, I just started um, Narcos. Yes. Um, and I was just about to go there next. I'm like, you all over Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I'm like really fortunate. And this character is, is also complicated. Yeah. Um, coming into se uh, season four, um, I'm have five uh, five uh, episode arc in there. Uh -huh. So the, and, and I just did this comedy. Remember uh, Amnesia that okay. I just shot actually right before I came out here. So it's, it's an Indian film, like a Bollywood film. Oh, very cool. So I'm getting to do all this array of stuff, and so. And, I, and if I look back on my career in general, I kind of go, oh, my God, I've done a lot of different things. It's hard to peg me. He's not the bad guy. He's not the good guy. He's not the thing. So it's, I think a lot of times people get difficult. But if you know what I'm saying, bring me in, give me the information. It's going to live. Yeah. It's going to live on the screen. I, yeah. I like it. I think it's great because I was talking to someone that was doing the interview with you, and I was trying to tell them, and they knew Uncle Pete. I was uh, like, you know, this has been active for like 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And like in stuff for mm -hmm. 20 years. I always think it's really crazy, too, when you have things like that. And then I'm looking at, you know, Mar like Marshall was last, last year and everything that he did. I'm getting like the clap. Think about Moonlight. I'm sorry. <laughs> Moonlight, yes. Uh, That's very nice. Yes. And House of Cards. But look at that. Same mm -hmm. thing. Yep. And now he's having this year. So mm -hmm. maybe next year is the hey, Curtis Cook here. From your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're here at Sundance. Yes. And Sundance, I will say, is one of these few festivals. Every festival talks about diversity. Mm -hmm. But Sundance for a long time has been way ahead of the game with their incubator program. I mean, Ava and, mm -hmm. and Ryan, they like all oh. came up through here and they've always been really big about getting um, diverse filmmakers yeah. with different voices. Unfortunately, sometimes it never goes past Sundance, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, what is it like for you if, uh, as far as your Sundance experiences and what you've seen? I'm, you know, I've been, uh, I've joined the alumni okay. because this summer I did the Sundance Lab. You know, yes, yeah. yeah, that's their incubator program, yeah, basically. Yeah, so this year I was up here, and once again, like you said, there was very diverse. Majority of the um, screenwriters were women. Mm -hmm. The piece I done was um, by Annie Silverstein. It was called Bull. It's about a black bullfighter. Mm -hmm. That's what they used to be um, called back in the day. Um, no, today they're called black bullfighters. What back were they in the called? Day, rodeo clowns. Rodeo clowns. So it's about okay. this rodeo clown who's getting to the end of his rope and he can't do it anymore, and oh, how wow. that's psychologically how he deals with that because it's his livelihood. Yeah, a yeah. beautiful story. Um, and. Um, and I feel like I've been out to Sundance four times now. And every time I've come, it never ceases to amaze me how many good, 
and I don't use that word lightly, how many good filmmakers there are that I had never heard of. It kind of seemed like they come out here, the stuff is celebrated, but something happens, get pushed. I'm thinking and I'm feeling that that's starting to change. I'm starting to see a lot more younger film right now. I mean, because, you know, um, like Netflix, like yeah. Amazon, like... They're um, changing the they're game. They're changing the game. I mean, I don't know if you would have gotten a Luke Cage right. TV show five years ago. And at, with a black showrunner. Yes, and that was that. the other kicker. Yes, mm -hmm. well, like, we are telling our voices. You know, it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we have this space, Black Girl Nerds, is because... We didn't feel like we had, were comfortable in comic book culture. So we were like, all right, I'm going to create my own space. And it's been awesome to have that. Um, speaking of which, with um, as you talk about the, the things around diversity, right? Because I've been, did you read some of the stuff when Luke Cage came out? And like people oh. commenting on it? Because I had a, like a juxtaposition. It was either, I love everybody commenting on um, every aspect of TV shows, but I felt that some people maybe didn't get perspective. Okay. Did you see any of that when everything came out or were you just yeah, seeing all the good? I, I, and it's, I try to filter through the noise, yeah. you know, and that's not to say I'm, I'm only, I'm only listening to the good stuff. I, you know, but sometimes if you hear something bad over and over again, maybe that takes a minute to just kind of view it a different uh, way. Uh -huh. Because obviously if 20 people say the same thing, a lot of people may not like it. In a, I mean, community. yeah, I think um, it's it's powerful to have a black man yes. in a black hood Hoodie. saying, I'm going to go and be a vigilante. Yes, and I'm going to go be a vigilante. And I don't know if everybody got that. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I was just wondering as somebody that was involved mm -hmm. with it from the mm -hmm. inception and knows how much blood, sweat, and tears, tears they put into that show, mm -hmm. how much um, how much you saw. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. You didn't see any of the other. We did. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Right, right, right. We did. So what are you looking forward to this year as far as anything here or anything on the horizon where you're like, I'm, I'm really excited about this next thing that either you're doing or that you're that you're a part of or, or seeing going forward? Well, like I said earlier um, to you, maybe not on, on, on the cast, is that my son is out here. And it's, it, okay, I have to stop because I'm about to well up a little bit. Yeah, I'm seriously, it's... um. How powerful was it seeing it? It was amazing, really amazing. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Watching him go through this shit by himself and flourishing. Oh my God. You know? yeah. We're going to get emotional here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <but laughs> it's okay because I, I mean, it's, it's. So we're covering Gook too. And mm -hmm. it's one of those ones, man, when you see the, the press notes for stuff, you circle it. And. It's really great too. I love this about filmmaking. Is it becomes like a family, family thing. Yeah, it really definitely. does. And unfortunately, that's somehow something that kept us out now. And I love that it's that's bringing us in because yeah. we now have people like you, and now we have legacy families, African American families yeah. in entertainment, and they're not just yes. acting. We're producing, producing it, and, <laughs> and directing, and all of it, writing. Oh, yeah. So, so those, that's that's really. I'm, and you know, I have. I have a lot of projects that are on the horizon, and I'm very proud of them. And I um, probably do a play. Okay, you know, yeah. This, this, I'm a theater this, nerd girl, okay, so you okay. you can preach to me about it all, <laughs> all day, day long. <laughs> I mean, I really feel bad because I don't live in New York. Uh, I've never lived in New York, but I've probably seen more playbills than most <laughs> people. Because like, yeah, because I grew up with that. Like, you know, I was literally like Glee. Like, I was like, this was not that cool when I was in high school. We got beat up yeah, for this all the time. Nobody was like, let's show go choir. sing along and show choir <laughs> right, right, right. or like musical theater. Like, uh -huh. nobody went to our version of Little Shop of Horrors. Of I tried. 
tried. You tried. You sold tickets, but nobody came. No, just your mama. Came, but I was happy. I'll still be happy. And I like that theater's having a, a better moment right yeah. now. And if you see Jessica James, she's actually a theater nerd in that. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's like what her character nah, is. Nah. But um, just to sum it up, and then we'll, I'll let you go because we all got to bundle up because it's yes, freezing it's outside. Yeah. About to be a snowstorm. Um, your your son, when he calls you up and he says he's got the role, what what did he say? Like when he says, okay, I got this and it's going to be at Sundance, what what was that? Yes. It was really funny because he called and he said, Dad, uh, can't really say nothing yet because it ain't, it ain't public yet. But uh, guess what? I said, what, what? He said, I'm going to Sundance. I said, you got to be serious. You can't be, you, 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 you're not serious right now. He said, yeah, I'm going to Sundance. I said, well, listen to this. I'm going to Sundance too. <laughs> See, y'all were both telling your truth at the, at same, the same time. time. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. <laughs> it I really was. Like, was. I was like, yes. Yeah, because so, Sundance are kept under wraps. Yes. Like, they get told very early, but you can't spill that anything. tea, yeah, you know? Until they make the announcement. Yeah, yeah. That's so yeah. cool. So, was he here today? Yeah, there he is right there. That's, oh, that's I <laughs> I'm missing out. I'm missing out. Anyway, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And next thing you have, please hit us up because we love talking to you. Well, tell your um you um listeners as well i tried to do this um promotional for myself i was trying to be the black lightning okay for, um, so i put it online black yeah, did, lightning yeah, yeah they were trying to do it for um the, the whole arrow and yeah, all of that yeah. franchise they were trying to let's black go lightning. curtis cook yeah. for black and lightning look on my twitter and this whole little promo i did of me playing black lightning i, I wrote Done. it directed this thing let's do it, let's do it. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you so thank much you, so you have much. a great day you too Black Girl Nerds is giving out some quick Patreon shoutouts. These are for our $50 or more Patreon supporters. Maylee Johnson, Opio Okeo, Sonia Sam, Jeff Dewing, Lauren S., and Susan Jackson. Thank you so much for donating $50 or more to the Black Girl Nerds Patreon account. And you can always support us by going to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.